All right, this morning we're going to be continuing on in our series uh, in the book of John uh, called The Word. We're going to be going into chapter 13. So we've been spending a number of weeks in chapter 12. Uh, today is Palm Sunday, traditionally within the, the Christian calendar. It's the Sunday before Easter, uh, but we actually covered Palm Sunday a number of weeks ago. Uh, and part of the reason is as you are in the book of, the jo- of John, as we are in this, there, there's so much that happens that final week uh, between Palm Sunday and, and Easter. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we spend some time going through this. Uh, we'll even head to Easter, and, and next week we'll focus on the resurrection of Christ, but then we'll probably backtrack a little bit into John because there's so much uh, in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 uh, that are all this one night before he was betrayed. Here is in chapter 13, we're actually beginning to get into that night, but there's four chapters of this. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're, we're able to focus on it. And uh, today we're going to be looking at one of the most recognized acts that Jesus did uh, that wasn't a a miracle. Uh, And so beginning in verse 1 here, um, but before we do that, let's pray. Uh, Father, we come before you uh, as we open up your holy word uh, that is living and active. Uh, We pray that it works within us. Uh, We humbly submit ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, to Scripture and your guidance, uh, and ask that you would help us to cleave to the truth Uh, and leave everything else behind. We thank you for the new life that you've given to us. We thank you and acknowledge it this week. We acknowledge it every week, uh, but help it to be a focus and a reminder of everything that you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so begin verse 1, and this is before the Passover festival and the beginning of this last night uh, where he was uh, betrayed and then arrested. Uh, It said, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. I just want to pause there uh, this morning, because I think it's a really interesting beginning to this passage. Uh, It's saying, like, okay, here's it, it's coming to the end. Jesus knew that his hour to depart from the world had come. He knew his reason for being there. He knew that the cross was in front of him. He knew that the shame of the cross was in front of him. He knows that it's, it's right here, and it's talking about him loving his disciples. Uh, he's got the, the supper that's happening. Judas is about to betray him. Uh, but specifically in verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. He had come from God, and he was going back to God. Uh, just imagine the, the, the confidence that Jesus has in this moment, knowing all of these things. Yes, tomorrow's going to be hard. <laughs> the cross is going to be difficult. But this is why I'm here. The, the Father has, has given everything into my hands. That I'm from Him and, and I'm going back. Like, like knowing all of these things, that, that everything is in play. Everything is about to happen for the most momentous thing in human history, everything been planned for, directed by God, caused by God, leading up to this moment. And, and so what would you do in a situation like that? Like I'm trying to think of like different situations where like you know that an outcome is, is absolutely certain. Um, what do you do? You know, do you, do you kind of kick back and relax a little bit? Like, all right. 
all my ducks are in a row, uh, everything is going according to plan, there's really not so much I have to do right here, I can just sit and have dinner. Judas is going to go do his thing, they'll come and arrest me, and, and then they'll just kind of go, so let's take it easy tonight, right? Uh, or maybe it's like this celebration kind of thing. I was kind of thinking about like, you know, election nights and, and you have certain politicians that will throw like a, a huge party on election night as, as the votes are coming in. They're like, I got this. Like all the polls show that I'm ahead. And so they got a, a big party to kind of like watch the numbers come in and, and celebrate with everybody. And, and Jesus here, God himself... Uh, a leader of the disciples, uh, of the apostle, apostles, as us as a church, like, does something absolutely profound in this moment. It's not celebration. It's not kicking back and relax. It, it, all of these things together, it says that he knew the Father, had given everything to his hands, he came from God, he was going back to God. Verse 4 then, so he got up from supper. So he knows all these things are about to take place. And the thing of all things that he chooses to do in this moment is to get up from supper, lay aside his outer clothing, take a towel, tie it around his waist, pour his water into a basin, and begins to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. I, just first of all, can, can you imagine that even happening at, at an election party kind of thing? You got the politician and everybody who's kind of helped him. And he's like, oh, thank you. Have some more d'oeuvres. Have a drink. Like, let's, let's party. And in the middle of it being like, you know what? Let me recognize what you did for me. Kick off your shoes. Like, let me. It's just totally out of the blue uh, of something that he's doing here, let alone the night before <laughs> he dies. Right? This is what he chooses to do out of all things. So it comes in verse 6 to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but after you'll understand. Peter's response was, you will never wash my feet. Now, this is a really interesting thing here, and the commentator George Beasley Murray uh, had two points on here that I thought were really kind of cool. The first one uh, is the actual phrasing of Peter's words within this passage. So in verse 6, when he comes to Simon Peter, and, and then Simon says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Like, that's our English translation. That's what we've put into Scripture. Um, because it, it makes sense to us. But literally within the Greek, uh, Jesus is coming. He's walking up to Peter. And, and Peter almost says something along the lines of, Master, you, my feet. That's what's in the Greek. Master, you. My feet. It's like this appalling sense that he has that he can't even form words into a sentence. Uh, and, and he's saying this. And then Jesus responds to him saying, Master, you, my feet. What you don't realize now, you'll understand later. Then Peter finally gets the words together in his mouth. You're never going to wash my feet. The second thing um, that this commentator brought out that, that really kind of explains Peter's reaction in the original language uh, is that washing feet was a menial and degrading task. Now, if you think about it, like, do we even like to wash each other's feet? Like, like even if you're married, my wife comes up to me, would you wash my feet? I'm just kind of like, take a bath, you got that yourself. Like, and we wear socks and, and shoes, right? Like, 
And we still kind of think, like, that's not the best thing to do. In that time, they were walking around in sandals. So they're walking around in the dust of the streets. Um, there wasn't cars driving. Like, I walked here this morning. It was a beautiful walk. There's, like, little flowers, like, popping up out of the ground, which is really cool to see after, like, snow on the ground last week. To, like, come and see, like, I don't know what they're called. I don't think they're violets, but they're, like, these beautiful blue flowers that are coming up. And Anybody know what those? What? Squill? S-Q-U-I-L-L. I really like squill. It sounds weird to say it. I really like squill. Like every, that's like the first flower I see like every spring. But, but I'm, I'm walking here and I have this nice sidewalk. No mud. No mud in my shoes. Uh, nice sidewalk. And I'm not sitting there dodging donkey droppings and camel droppings on the way in. Which is what they would have had to do as they were walking through the main thoroughfares of their time. And so washing their feet isn't just taking off a shoe, taking off a sock, you know, going over to the tap water and getting some soap. And we still don't like to do that. But, but here Jesus is coming and he's going to wash the feet. And it was considered a, a menial task. Uh, and George Murray brought out uh, that they didn't, that the Jewish culture didn't even require slaves that were Jews to do this. Like, like it's so demeaning that we're not going to even let our Jewish slaves do this. This is for the Gentile slaves because we value them less. They see it's such a demeaning thing. In fact, there was a, a whole court case that happened um, between a rabbi and his mother. And, and his mother had come up to the rabbi and said, I want to wash your feet. And, and the rabbi's like, absolutely not, completely like forbade it. And, and she took him to court in order to, to argue her case that this is like an honoring thing, like, like this is me wanting to honor uh, my son, the, the rabbi. Um, and so it was the, one of those things that was just completely foreign to their concept in what Jesus was doing here. That, that first of all, he's doing something that they wouldn't even require a Jewish slave to do. Secondly, if they kind of got the concept of maybe he's trying to honor me, like, no, absolutely not. Like, like I think back to, to Mark's illustration at the beginning, and, and you have Michael Jordan in this room, and he comes up to you and says, you know what, you're such a great basketball player. I'd be like, um, no. <laughs> like, I wouldn't even receive it. I wouldn't even, like, accept it because, like, absolutely not. Like, there's such a difference between his skill and, and my paltry dribbling. You know, I feel like an awkward third grader compared to, to him. And so the disciples here, even if they get the concept of Jesus trying to honor them, would be like, no, this is backwards. This, this is wrong. And, and yet none of them even thought to maybe offer to wash his feet, even though they'd already seen it happen with Mary anointing his feet with oil. But they didn't do it. Now they see Jesus doing it here. Peter couldn't comprehend it. His response was, Master, you, my feet. Like, just didn't get it. And this isn't the first time that Peter had a response like this, right? We go to Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus in this passage uh, is beginning to point out to his disciples it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, to be killed and then raised on the third day. 
Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turns and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns but human concerns. And so Peter had a similar response to this in something else. Jesus is saying, it's necessary for me to die. And, and Peter's like, no, I can't comprehend it. It's not even possible. This will never happen. You will never wash my feet. And I think what Jesus' response in Matthew is the same as his response to Peter here. He says, you're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about human concerns. This is why he's saying uh, to Peter, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterwards you will understand Right now, you're thinking along the lines of human concerns. Right now, you're thinking that washing feet uh, is a demeaning thing. You're not understanding what I'm doing spiritually. You're not understanding what this actually means. And, and when the Holy Spirit reveals it to you, you're going to be like, oh, I get it. And so he replies in this then, after Peter says, you'll never wash my feet, uh, in verse 8, by saying, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And so Peter's response again, he is the bombastic, like, like just, what's the word? He just blurts stuff out. Impulsive, thank you. That is the perfect word for it. Peter's just like this impulsive guy that says things. Like, Jesus, no, my feet, you'll never wash my feet. Okay, you won't have a part with me. Okay, then, then wash everything. <laughs> just give me a bath right here and right now because, like, I want to be that much of a part with you. So he says, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. And I, it's just an amazing response where I Peter is like flustered and he can't get words out of his mouth and, and then all of a sudden he's like, okay, well, well then just do everything. And Jesus' response in this, he's still, Peter's still looking at it in an earthly way. Right? Like, don't just wash my feet, but here's my hands. You know, make sure you get the good conditioner. Um, he's thinking of this in an earthly way. Then Jesus replies, and now here Jesus is making the switch to the spiritual. Verse 10, one who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he has been completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. And this is why he said, not all of you are clean. So this, this sentence can get a little convoluted if we're just thinking about this in, in an earthly sense. If we're just thinking about, okay, if they've all had a bath, they just need to wash their feet in order to get their feet clean after traveling. Like, well, that we understand, that we get. He says, you are clean, but, but not all of you. And in that moment, he's talking about something spiritual. He's no longer just talking about water and feet and hands and head, but rather spiritual cleanness. The, the concept of forgiveness through Christ, through grace, through mercy, through what He's about to accomplish on the cross and the cleansing work of Jesus' blood. Paying for our sins with His blood. Revelation 7 refers uh, to those who find salvation that, that were washed in the blood of Christ but then made white as snow. Like, like It makes for a great song. It makes for really, really bad laundry recommendations. Right? 
Like, like you've got some dirty clothes. Uh, let's go take the lamb out back. Let's kill it. Let's put the blood into the washing machine. Uh, let's spin it around a couple of times, and it'll come out white. It doesn't work for that. But spiritually, what it's saying is sin in our life has made us dirty, has made us unclean. And, and there's no way that we ourselves can wash this sin off. There's nothing that we can do to atone and make up for all uh, the red in our ledger and to be able to come into God's good graces, love, and forgiveness. There's nothing we can do to get the stains out, essentially. However, through Jesus' death on the cross, through His blood, we find forgiveness of sins. That He paid the cost for us. That, that He is the one that wiped the slate clean and then adopted us into His family as sons and daughters. That, that, that in that sense, all of our stains of sin have been washed clean because of the blood of Christ. Which then, the illustration makes sense of, of being white as snow. And so here he's sitting here and he's saying, uh, you're clean, but not all of you. Because Judas is still there. And Jesus just washed his feet. Jesus just washed Judas' feet. Physically cleaning off the feet of the man who's about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And he's saying... You've been washed, but you're not all clean. You're not all forgiven. You're not all in grace. And he's making the declaration there, and I can't even imagine what it was like for Jesus in that moment. Like at the very beginning of this passage, it said he knows that his hour has come. He's already told them that he's going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the priests and that he's going to, to die. And, and he takes off his outer clothing, puts a towel around his waist, carries a bowl up to Judas, who's laying there. And, and again, that's how it would be. Like it's, it's not like you're sitting in the chair and I walk up to you and I get down on my knees and wash your feet. But the way that they would eat would be reclined. They'd have some pillows and they'd be laying down on the ground. And so Judas, would, his face would be at the table and he'd be laying down on the ground. And so Jesus would be walking up to Judas who's lying there enjoying food, knowing this is the one who's been stealing money. This is the one who's about to betray me. Because of what he will do, I will suffer and die. And he tenderly picks his feet up and washes them. Cleans them off. It's just astounding to me. If I'm in Jesus' place, again, I might be more on the party side. You know, like, okay, it's all taken care of. Like, I don't have to worry about it. God has it in control. I don't have to worry about it. Let's maybe stop the teaching for a night because tomorrow's going to get really hard. Instead, Jesus humbles himself. If Judas walks in the door, I'd be like, dude, I know what you're doing. Just go do it. In fact, Jesus kind of says that later, right? What you're doing, go do quickly. And then Judas leaves. Jesus says that. But he chooses to say it not at the door before Judas comes in, but he chooses to say it after he washes his feet. I can't imagine 
the, the grace, the mercy, the compassion that it would take to be able to do something like that. To, to do something that you know is going to happen. I think it would even be harder to do it to somebody that's already done something to you. Right? Like, like we have betrayal in our life. We have people that hurt us. We have people that do bad things for us. And, and we can get to a point where we choose to forgive. And, and then we can show grace. But to show grace before they even do what they're going to do, even though you know everything that they're going to do, it's just absolutely profound to me what Jesus is doing and what a display of royal humility. That the one who spoke all things into existence is washing the feet of all of his disciples and including the one who would betray him. Now we look at this and we see Jesus' humility in this, but if we only look at just this instance of washing the feet, we don't get a full picture that actually fits with his whole character. What he's doing in this moment, even washing Judas's feet, is a reflection of Jesus' character of his whole life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 states that Jesus, who existing in the form of God, uh, in the Greek this word form is exact representation. It's one of the passages that we use to show that Jesus is God. It, it means the exact replica of God, is God. Did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. In other words, even though he spoke all things into existence, Jesus is God. Here on earth, he, he said, I'm not using that power. I'm not using that ability. I'm not using that authority. And he certainly could have. Right? The Pharisees are like, well, who are you? Boom! Here's a llama. <laughs> and a llama just appears out of nothing. Like, I think that would have been some substantial proof that Jesus could have done in that moment, right? Or Alimu. I'm just thinking of commercials right now, honestly. <laughs> the Limu Emu. Anyways. But he doesn't do that. He's, he's coming down to earth in humility. Verse 7, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become as a man, so fully God, fully man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The death that a criminal would die. The one who spoke all things into existence. His whole life has been humility and serving. He was born in a manger because there was no guest room for him. He had poor parents. Uh, later in the midst of his ministry, he had no home. He fully submitted everything he did to the leading of the Father wasn't like, oh, you know, I could go spend some time soaking in the Dead Sea and, and get that good mineral bath. But, but rather, it's like, no, there's this demoniac guy that's got a bunch of demons in, and I need you to go deal with that. And so he goes and does everything that the Father is calling him to do, eventually dying like a criminal. But all of this is an example of humility and service. That's encapsulated with him washing Judas' feet and the rest of his disciples, even though it was considered to be a demeaning thing. 
This is all reflected. And because of all of this, Jesus then asked this question in verse 12. After he'd washed their feet, put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? Do you know what I've done for you? And if they're sitting there in an earthly mindset, I think Peter's probably still sitting there like, but my feet, like, what's happening here? Jesus says, then in 13, and this is the spiritual principle, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly, since that is what I am. This is my authority. This is my position. This is who I am. So if I, as your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And so Jesus is taking this moment, this beginning of the night that he was betrayed, to teach humility. To teach his followers that they ought to serve one another. To to love one another. Even if the world standard looks at it and says, well, that's demeaning. That's lowly. That you shouldn't have to do that for another person. That's why Jesus washed their feet. They were looking at it and saying, this is too demeaning. This is too lowly. He shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus is saying our love to one another, our service to one another, shouldn't be bound by humanity's standards of what is proper. But rather, what is love? What is service? What is humility? And that you're blessed if you do them. And so he says, what I've done for you, do for one another. And, and yet, we don't wash each other's feet. Right? Like, like, this is the night that he actually started communion. Do this in remembrance of me. And, and how often do we com- do communion? We try and do it at least twice a month. We're going to do it a couple of times this week with Easter. But yet we don't take this and say, okay, twice a month we're going to be washing each other's feet. Because I think the principle of this is actually asking us to do something even harder. It would be hard for us to wash each other's feet. It would be humbling of ourselves. And, and I've been a part of um, different ministries or retreats where we've done that as an example of this. But I think what Jesus is saying is the principle is to serve in humble love even to those who have betrayed you. Even where it's difficult. It's hard to wash feet, but, but how hard is it to love and live sacrificially with grace for people that have hurt us or betrayed us in our jobs, in our family, in our marriages, with our friendships? Those are really hard things to do. Because as humans, we can really hurt one another. We can say things that are hard. We can betray one another. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is, that happened to me, and the example that I set was grace. The example that I set was still compassion. Judas wasn't forgiven, but Jesus still served him. Jesus still reflected his nature to him. And that's what we're called to do. Imagine... 
Our marriages, if a husband and wife, their whole focus was humility and patience and forgiveness to one another, even in the midst of betrayal. That's not an easy thing for us to do. Right? Especially with betrayal. And yet, Jesus was betrayed and did this, and he said, this is the example. The Part of the example was that Judas still wasn't forgiven, but he still served and reflected God's nature to him. What if our, natures were, our, wedding, our marriages were built on that? We're both partners. We're saying, how can I lovingly, sacrificially serve the other person? Instead of saying, what can I get? What do I need? How are my needs met? How are my needs filled? In fact, it's really, really interesting if you go to um, James chapter 4. It says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder and covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. So in other words, all the conflict comes from desires and passions within us that are saying, what about me? What about my needs? What about what I want? What about I have to have? And because we're not getting what we have to have, then conflict happens because we're trying to grab what we're supposed to get. It's the exact opposite of the example that Jesus is showing. The other person. How do I serve them? What do they need? What does God have for them? The answer, like to James chapter 4, how to get rid of conflict is to stop seeking ourselves first, but instead to seek the needs of others, even those that have betrayed us. Now again, I'm not talking about a deep betrayal and then forgiveness as though nothing had ever happened and you walk into places of abuse or any, not saying those things. Judas betrayed Jesus, wasn't forgiven, never came back, and was ultimately punished for what he did. But Jesus still showed love to him and compassion to him. That's what I'm saying that we should do. But this idea of conflicts come up within our marriages, our jobs, our family relationships, our our friendships, uh, father and daughter and son, parents and children, like all these things, conflicts come up, especially when we're saying, me first, this is what I need. Instead of saying, what do you need? In fact, we're encouraged this way in Philippians chapter 2. It says, if then there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, like, like who here has encouragement in Jesus? Right? Like, like we have lots of encouragement and blessing and grace from Jesus. If we have love from him, if we have the fellowship of the Spirit, we have all these things because of what Jesus did for us. Verse 2, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing that James chapter 4 says causes conflict. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look out only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. We're commanded to follow the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus, even in difficult circumstances with people we may not even like, is to serve sacrificially but to do it as the Father commands us to do it, right? It's not just going out of our way and saying, okay, like, let's just be super extra nice and we put all of our efforts and all of our intentions into this. It's like, what is God calling me to do? And then we do that out of the concern for their needs, out of, out of their, um, their heart and where they're at with God. Even knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he's still like, this is a son. This is a creation. This is a man in the image of God. And I'm going to care for him. He's going to make the choice that he's going to make. But as far as it be with me, I'm going to care for him, was the example that he set for us. And so if we do this, it says uh, in here, in verse 17, in John 13, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If we do this, if we follow the example and live in sacrificial humility and serving one another, it will reduce the conflict in our life. Because the conflict comes from pursuing after ourselves first. And so we'll be blessed by doing that. But the other thing here I think is interesting uh, is that he says, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. He's not just saying, you're blessed if you know these things. Like, like, here's the secret to imitating Jesus. You're blessed for knowing it. He's saying, no, if you know them and you do them, then you're blessed. I was just having a conversation uh, with my daughter this week. And she's like, I want to run more. I'm like, that's good. It's after I beat her in a race. So she had some motivation there. Like, she was running, and I let her get ahead, and then I caught up and just blew past her. Uh, and so after that, well, she's 11, so it's a little easier. Uh, but after that, she's like, I, I want to run more. It's like, is that because you want to beat me? But I want to run more. I feel like, I just feel like I want to run. Okay, that's good. What are you going to choose to do? What do you mean? I said, it's one thing to say that you want to run more. It's one thing to say that you want to be better at running. But what are you going to choose to do? You can want to run all that you want, but you're not going to have the benefit. You're not going to get faster. You're not going to be able to go longer distances unless you start running. It's the same for anything in our life. I want to get healthier. Wanting to is a great thing. What are you going to do? I want to imitate Jesus. I, I want to live sacrificially. It's great to want it. But how do you do it? And the example here given to us by Jesus in Philippians is do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others as more important than yourselves. Again, the example that Jesus had was, I'm your Lord and Master, and it's right that you call me that because this is who I am. But I'm going to care for your needs. I could ask you to wash my feet, but I'm going to care for your needs. 
This passage is not telling us to become lowly worms or doormats that everybody can walk over us in life asking anything that we, they want and we just give it to them because we're just the serving kind of person. It's not saying this. You are a son or daughter of the God who spoke all things into existence. You are a royal priesthood. You will judge angels in heaven. You've been given a commission by the king of all things to be his representatives here on earth. Jesus, you are part of him. Ephesians tells us we are part of Christ and who is the head of the church and all things are under his feet. So if we are in Christ, where is everything that is of the world under us? We're in him. All things are under his feet. So therefore, when we're interacting with people, we're in Christ. We're sons and daughters of the King. We're, we are the anointed, redeemed ones in the image of God. We are not going to be put underneath anybody because we're in Christ. But knowing that position and calling ourselves that is right and it is true because it is what God has called us to be. We are that. We are His redeemed children. In that confidence of identity that we are in God's hands and nothing can take us out of His hands, He has all things planned together and that we're going home to Him. The very same confidence that Jesus had right before He washed Judas' feet all things are in God's hands. He's going back to him. We have the same confidence. Knowing that, understanding our identities, we can then choose to say, how can I serve? How can I point people to God? Not demeaning myself, not letting them walk all over me, but I am here as a representative of Jesus and I'm going to wash your toilet. I'm going to mow your grass. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to help muck out your stalls. Because this is what God's calling me to do. And it's showing his love towards you. Through me. That is what Jesus was getting at. And I think he's calling us to do something more difficult than if we just all took off our shoes right now and washed each other's feet. But to do it in actual life. When it's hard. That's the example Jesus set. It's what he did for us. And as we do it, we shine as bright lights in the darkness and God's nature is revealed. Because a lot of people in the world out there have an idea of God, if they even believe that He exists, of, of this guy who's like, yeah, I don't care about people, I'm just waiting for them to screw up and then I'm going to squash him like a bug. To, to live in, in fear of making mistakes. That's not the picture that Jesus gave us when he washed feet. He washed the feet of the one who would betray him and wouldn't repent. He also washed Peter's feet who would betray him, deny him, and would repent. A God that would get down on his knees to, to pick up the foot of Judas and to wash it is not a God that's looking down, waiting for us to screw up in order to squash us. He's not a God that says to us, you're terrible, you're horrible, you're always a screw-up. He's a God that's saying, I'm here for you, I love you, I care for you, I hope that you don't do what you're about to do. 
the tenderness of God is shown so much in this passage. And then he tells us to do the same thing. Father, we come before you. I thank you, Lord, for this passage, uh, for humility that you showed in this. Um, I thank you for the difficult task that you've given us uh, to, to do the same thing to others. Because it means that we get to take part of your ministry and revealing the very character that you've shown to us that has led us to salvation. Father, I ask that you would give us strength and humility. I pray that you help us to have full confidence in the identity that you have given to us. And then out of that identity, we serve in humility reflecting Jesus Christ. That we wouldn't do it to try and gain brownie points because then we fall into James chapter 4 and we're doing it out of selfish ambition. But we do it out of a humble...